Welcome to the podcast of MotorWeek, television's original automotive magazine. MotorWeek is made possible by Cars.com. Here's your MotorWeek podcast host, John Davis. Hello, and I'm glad you've joined us for MotorWeek's 25th podcast. Around our table in Studio C today is Road Test producer Brian Robinson. Hello, and welcome. Our writer, Shami Choksi. Ahoy, John. And our <laughs> associate producer, Ben Davis. Hello. Uh, we'll have our lightning round, and also we'll take a look at our MotorWeek mailbag. But let's get right into the hardware. Brian Robinson, you just came back from the preview for the 2010 Acura ZDX. Yes. What is it, and did you like it? Well, if you're familiar with the BMW X6, uh, it's basically an Acura version of that vehicle, which means uh, a crossover with coupe-like styling, sedan practicality with SUV versatility. Boy, you sound just like a PR person. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure I got that right from the uh, press kit. But uh, basically, uh, it's an empty nester type vehicle uh, with for people that love to go out on weekends and spend their money on antiques and want to be comfortable. Uh, Compared to the X6, uh, it's got room for three in the back seat. Um, versus the X6 has just the room for four. For uh, two, for, two front and two right, back. Two, right. uh, it's got a lot of trick features. They really tried to push the coupe-like styling. It's got some really aggressive uh, fender, rear fenders. Uh, the rear door uh, openers are hidden kind of in the C-pillar, so you you really have to know they're there to even know it's it's got a rear door. Uh, it's got their super handling all-wheel drive. I would say it doesn't handle quite as well as the X6, but pretty darn close, and it's a much better daily driver. It's got a much better ride to it. That uh, X6 can be kind of a rough ride daily driving, but it's got the super handling uh, all-wheel drive. It's got a panoramic glass roof. Goes uh, all the, the entire roof is uh, one big glass panel. Uh, it's kind of nice. We did the preview up in uh, Manhattan, and uh, it drew quite a crowd. Everywhere we went up there, it was. Uh, you know, trying to shoot people away so we could shoot the thing. You know, <laughs> you know I would have never guessed that these five-door crossover coupe-like utilities would have become a trend. But we've got the X6, we've got the Venza from Toyota, we've got the ZDX. I think there's more of these coming. FX, uh, uh, Infinity FX. There you go. I, I see Aztecs yeah. on the street now, the Pontiac Aztecs. Look, oh, I take them in a whole right. new light. Yeah. They're everywhere now. You're right. Look at the roof line of an Aztec. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. They were way ahead of their time. I, I see oh, them. Yeah, that's one way to put it. I see them in a whole new light. <laughs> Interesting vehicle. I mean, it's obviously a niche vehicle. Do they give you any idea of how many they think they're going to sell? No, they didn't. Really, they don't. Uh, Honda generally doesn't like to give uh, projections on how many they sell. Obviously, it's going to be a limited production type thing. But it's based on the MDX and built in the same plant. Correct. Correct. Right. And it's all about style, really. The interior, uh, typical Acura, is very uh, simple and uh, luxurious. Uh, but they got some. It's got. I wouldn't say it's a tight-fitting interior, but it's definitely a somewhat cocoon-like. You know, a lot of leather and and uh, you know, a lot of a lo- the the current uh, generation MDX um, has been very popular with women drivers, but not as popular with men drivers as the older ones. And I guess the ZDX is kind of answering that. It gets it for the guy who wants a little more sportiness in their crossover utility, but still wants some usefulness. 
right. it appeals to the, that. Uh, it's the trunk. It was uh, this cargo area is pretty neat. It's it's all of it is uh, square box mm-hmm. shaped and it's really nice, uh, nicely carpeted. It's sounding more like the Aztec every day. Uh, yeah, but then it's got you the floor. There's stores under the floor, and you can remove the two side panels. And you can fit a lot more stuff in there. So really smartly designed interior. Yeah, and Price, it feels oh, it feels very roomy. Price-wise, compared to the X6, what, what are we I will, they wouldn't release pricing, but I would say it would come in uh, less than definitely less than the X6. Yeah, it could be five to ten grand less if yeah. they follow the history. Seven or eight, I think, would be yeah. a good good guesstimate. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. Okay, this one's open for everybody. Now, there's a new car. I'm going to set the stage. There's a new car coming from Suzuki. It's called the Kazashi. Uh, this is a production sedan, using, and they've been showing us a bunch of concepts over the last several years uh, that look nothing like it, but this sedan has got elements from it. Uh, Suzuki's kind of uh, been on the skids. Their sales are way down. It's not just the economy, but they really haven't had a whole lot of new product, and a lot of their dealers have gone Go away. Uh, their motorcycles thrive, but their car division here in the U.S. is in problem, having problems. Here comes this new sedan. It's kind of an in-betweener. It's not as big as a Camry or Accord, but it's larger than a Corolla or a Civic. It's a, they're, they're billing it as their first all-wheel drive capable sports sedan. You can get it in front or all-wheel drive. And we were very lucky enough to have one of the uh, pre-production models in here a few weeks ago and really give it a thorough testing. So what's the verdict, everybody? Did you like the car? Do you think it fits its niche? Uh, is it going to help Suzuki get out of a hole? Who wants to start? Well, I'm not sure it help him get out of the hole or not. Uh, it was a very good-looking car, I'll say that. Really a pretty uh, car. Stunning. Yeah. Stunning. yeah. Uh, as far as track performance, I can't say it was overwhelmingly uh, excited by that. Uh, we had the four-cylinder engine with the CVT, which uh, wasn't exactly exhilarating performance. But as far as styling, like I said, it's re- an interior was uh, interior is very nice, very luxurious. So I very premium, that very much all. more upscale yeah. than anything they've done before. Got like Kia Century, and I think it had a rear seat side airbags you know a lot of yeah. upmarket eight features. airbags yeah. the um the the car you know it's like neither feast nor foul it's it's not a pure family car and from our performance it, it handled very well up to about 75 80 percent from looking at what everybody said at the track and then it would be sort of transition from being a very competent uh, sports sedan to basically a little um soft and with understeer. So it turns out being very safe, but it takes sort of the fun out of it. Mm. And power-wise, uh, it was certainly no screamer. Um, they have a V6 coming, or is that maybe I don't one? know. Okay. They've got a hybrid coming uh, that will get better fuel economy, but even this one's uh, rated very well, 2330, uh, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's a very, very competent effort. Ben, did you have anything to add? I, I thought it was a great-looking car as well, and the wheels in particular um, complimented the car beautifully, and it almost, um, it almost, I, I compare it directly to, to me, it it brings up cues of Mitsubishi Lancer mm-hmm. through the front and, and specifically the wheels. Um, but I would definitely cross shop the two. The uh, size wise, I should say, they actually, when I looked up some of the stats, it fits right between the BMW 3 Series and an Audi A4, which, if you're trying to be a sports sedan, that's a pretty great place to be. Mm-hmm. 
Sweet. Uh, I think it's besides the name, which I have trouble pronouncing. Yeah, yeah it's, well, the name uh, we didn't touch on this means uh, something great is coming. So I, I mean, I think the Kazashi's a, a nice effort. I don't know if it is the actual great thing that's coming, or if it's saying something great is coming soon after this. You know, but it's well, kind if, of this, if it's it indicative, like if it's indicative of what Suzuki's got planned. The, the products are going to be much more upscale and more interesting than what they've out. been doing. Right. So. Uh, so I wish them well with it because I think it's a very, very competent vehicle. And frankly, when you look around um, Asian products, I mean, what's your competition? Uh, Acura TSX, uh, that would be the big competitor. And, uh, and that with a four-cylinder hasn't done that well. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I'm not so sure there's a market for a four-cylinder sports sedan. But I, I should say we don't know the price of this car yet. And the rumors are that it will be a base price of $20,000, which will make it a screaming bargain if they do that. So we'll see. But very interesting car, Suzuki Kasashi. Okay, our last vehicle we're going to talk about on this podcast, the 2010 Audi Q7 TDI. This is the turbo diesel version of the big Audi Q7 uh, utility. And who wants to start? Was it, is it the right application for a diesel or what? Yeah, I would think, uh, you know, big SUVs need diesels more than anything else. And we seem to be getting, be getting more and more German diesels in lately. Right. And uh, I love them. They're they're quiet and smooth. They're fast. They just a joy to drive. And this is a almost six thousand pound vehicle, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so oh, it was well, three tons. It feels like it too. Yeah, uh, fuel economy. What do we get? Twenty. Twenty. 20 like which 20 compares to about fifteen that we got with the gas with yeah, the V eight. They're, they're claiming a six hundred mile range per tank, right? Which is pretty impressive. I didn't really feel the. I mean, you can feel the weight. Granted, it's definitely heavy, but. It, mostly you feel it off the line once you're going once you're on a back road or an open highway it it, um, it it feels it'll dwarf itself from behind the wheel much like an a8 wheel really um this has got a urea injection system so it's like the mercedes systems that we've seen where you have that separate fluid that has to be put in occasionally and bmw yeah. and bmw too right. uh any thoughts about whether or not Americans are going to adapt to that, or is it a big issue since we're talking a premium, very premium vehicles? Um, I think we're going to have to eventually. I mean, I think we're going to get more. I think the Germans are companies are really pushing them, and uh, rightly so. I think it's uh, the right product at the right time. You know, you can buy that stuff now in almost any auto parts store. Yeah. That surprised yeah. me. So yeah. it, it's well, readily you, available. For you the, should never have to fill it anyway. It comes with your normally scheduled service, and it should last. Um, Until said, the next oil change or whatever. Yeah, and they will top it off for you. The only the thing that they said you might have to top it off if you do a lot of towing and, uh, you know, really working a lot like that, a lot of hard labor. But. Again, the, the only problem with a, a diesels in this country is right now fuel prices are down, but they could go way back up. But I guess if you're in the market for this kind of premium vehicle, maybe that's not such a big issue. Mm -hmm. I, I'm glad to see more modern, super clean turbo diesels enter the market. And let's just hope they start trickling down a bit uh, to the uh, lesser price models. Although right now it looks like they're going to stay pretty much at the high end. If you need to see the uh, V12, if you yeah. need to see V12 uh, option in this Q7. 
over here in the Oof. U.S. B12, Q7. <laughs> everything starts out at the high end, and then it trickles down, right. and that's been the trend. So. Uh, although, you know, that's a, a topic for another show, whether it's going to be diesels or hybrids. I think the Japanese have now voted for hybrids. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's room for both. Yeah. Okay, let's go on to uh, what would normally be our lightning round where everybody gets a chance to weigh in. And this is a, a, an interesting question that a lot of people are not aware of. Uh, the, here's here's what's going on. There is a, a bill that's being debated in Congress. It's called the Right to Repair Act. And basically what it says is if the act passes, uh, independent repair shops will have access to the technical information, all the technical information and the tools and so forth that automakers usually reserve just for their franchise dealers. So that when a vehicle is new, even when it just gets out of warranty, if you have something unusual to fix about it, most repair shops can't do it because they don't have the information, the computer program. Uh, the test equipment and the tools to do it. This would make all of that available to the independent shops. The question we have is, should Congress pass this law? Should automakers be forced to give that kind of information to independent repair shops, or is this an infringement on automakers' intellectual property rights? Because I should say that if this goes through, a lot of... um, car company technology could be exposed to their competitors. At least that's one argument against it. A lot of industrial spies are going to go out of business, too. Well, that may not be such a bad thing. But what do you think about it? All of us sit around this table work on our cars in one time or another, and we all use independent repair shops. That's true. I can, I'm reluctant to say I think that, uh, I think that repair facilities should have access to this information, but I can see the other side of the coin where another aspect of uh, manufacturers is that uh, once this information is divulged and these independent repair shops are doing these repairs, they might not do them to uh, the appropriate level of quality Mm -hmm. that a dealership would do, and that would lead to breakdowns, which would, would lead to reliability issues associated with that brand because of repairs that aren't done by qualified technicians. Maybe with the right tools, just by having the right tools and by having the technology doesn't necessarily mean that these people should be fixing the vehicles. Why is this issue coming up now? Well, it's been an issue for a long time because more and more of the cars now, everything on a car is computer controlled. And most of the local, the independent shops just aren't capable uh, they don't have the the interfacing and you know stuff to interface with the car to figure out what's going on. They're relying with a lot of, I wouldn't say old fashioned, but say rudimentary um, uh, computerized tools. And there's a uh, a lot of people think it's restraint of trade. You know, I guess my feeling is that I don't think they're going to get have to give this away for free. They'll get to charge for it. And I'm not so sure a lot of repair shops will jump in all across the board. I can see somebody, if somebody is a, a, a specialist in one brand, say they only work on Toyotas, I can see them going in and buying it so that they can keep current. But it almost would only be after the warranty runs out. I mean, because till the warranty runs out, somebody's going to take it back to the dealer. So we're really talking about information that may be three to five years old by the time a local shop wants to pick it up. So you have to ask yourself, why isn't that stuff available without a law? Because it's no longer new anymore. So I hate to see a law, but I think the automakers ought to be proactive and make this stuff available and avoid this kind of uh, uh, situation. 
Anybody else? Yeah, this this, this question is above my pay grade. Well, <laughs> it's a very interesting question, but it affects you know thousands and thousands, many thousands of independent repair shops across the country. Yeah, it's easy for me to say it should be available to them, but you know, as a manufacturer, you got to have some control over over your reputation, as, as Ben stated. So seems yeah. to me like they could do a time limit. You know, after a car's out five years, yeah. you've got to release the information and the tools so that the independent mm-hmm. repair shop's got a fair chance of of picking up uh, where the warranty left off. And I'm sure there's factors that only a manufacturer would think of that we aren't even touching hey, on. Sure. We're, we're, we're not technicians, that's for sure. Okay, um, let's move on now to our Motor Week mailbag, always a good part of the show. And if you've got a question you'd like to answer it on our podcast, why not visit our website at motorweek.org. You can submit a question, and if you're chosen, we will make sure you get, by first-class mail, a free Motor Week T-shirt. It's awesome, too. You definitely want <laughs> Yeah, there we go. A little response there. Uh, the question comes from Sam in New Rochelle, New York. Okay, I wondered if you could give us a brief overview of two of the newest transmission types, dual clutch versus CVT. And how do they operate, so forth and so on, and what are the pluses and minuses? Let me try and talk about how they operate. The CVT, continuously variable transmission, around a long time, comes and goes. Nissan's using it mostly right now. We just talk about the Suzuki Kasashi that has one. Instead of using traditional gears to um, step the power up and down as it comes out of the engine, they're using what essentially is two pulleys uh, that are a variable diameter and a belt made out of metal or metal and rubber that runs between them. And the belt moves up and down the pulleys, and that's how you vary the, the gear ratio. Similar to like a 10-speed bicycle where you go step down, up and down the size of the sprocket, and it changes. Excellent yeah. analogy. Yeah. That's right. Exactly like that, or very much like that. Uh, except in this case, it's all done on a, a smoother cone surface, so there's no jolting. Now, a lot of these transmissions have fake shift points put in them. Uh, uh, my Mini Cooper's got one, and it's it's got you can actually shift it yourself, and it goes through six simulated gears. Uh, so, but it's basically designed to take the inefficiency away from an automatic transmission that's inherent when you are changing gears in an automatic, where automatics usually you lose a lot of their momentum and use up uh, a lot of extra gas just shifting. That was the concept. Yeah, and try to keep it the engine running at its peak efficiency as at much a, as possible. And at a fairly uniform yeah. speed. The whole idea here is not so the engine doesn't go up and down right. in RPMs a lot. Subaru just brought it back too, right? Yeah, Subaru's just brought it back on the new Legacy. Okay, dual clutch is a much different animal. This is primarily uh, developed in Europe for higher performance vehicles. Uh, this is essentially a manual transmission um, transmission with two automatic clutches. And the idea is that one clutch will be closed when one gear is engaged, but on the other side of the transmission, the second clutch is open, but the next gear up is also engaged so that when you want to shift, either manually or automatic, all that has to happen is one clutch opens and the other clutch closes, and that can be done a lot faster than pushing the clutch pedal in, shifting the gears, and letting the clutch pedal out. And so it's basically an, out, uh, an outcome of Formula One racing technology, and it's widely being used by uh, Audi, Volkswagen, uh, and others, BMW. And now Porsche. Support, Porsche. And Porsche. Yeah, not the best one so far. Yeah. So with that said, we drive a lot of vehicles with both these transmissions. 
What do you think about them? If you are directing somebody towards one or the other, uh, which isn't really likely, but let's put it another way. What kind of cars do each of these transmissions fit best, in your opinion? CVTs are, are obviously are moving toward the things that are more fuel efficient, the hybrids. Uh, family cars, family more, cars more, more routine automobiles. Just soft, yeah, things that are less, uh, less impact vehicles, less sporty yeah, vehicles. High mileage. Yeah. Things yeah. you buy with economy in mind. Right. I mean, Prius so uses Nissan one. Nissan Cube, you know, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I find there are good ones and bad ones. My Mini, which is a first-generation new Mini, it's got a fairly bad one. There's a lot of surging between it. Uh, some of the ones that we've tested, like Nissan, I think really has it nailed. Yeah, uh, they seem to have the best. best. Nissan, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Audi uh, had a good one for a while. Um, I guess, I'm not, I've forgotten whether they still have it or not. Uh, by and large, if you see one in a vehicle and it is not a high-performance vehicle, it's okay, right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. It's it takes it's, you, used you'd to. rather have a good geared automatic, right, Brian? Um, CVTs can get annoying sometimes, especially if you're not used to them. And you don't know because instead of you know your RPMs going up and down, they just stay. And if you give it a lot of throttle, they go up pretty high, you know, five six thousand, and they just stay there until your vehicle accelerates to meet to uh, match that RPM. So you know, they can, if you if you're going to do any performance driving, they tend to get annoying to me anyway. I should yeah. note that uh, they don't always deliver the better fuel economy that's expected. Uh, Ford had both a six-speed automatic and a CVT available on the 500 and the Taurus X, and they actually dropped the CVT because the six-speed automatic, uh, traditional geared automatic, got better fuel economy. Hmm. Wow. And CVTs are expensive. Okay, let's now talk about very briefly the twin clutch manual automatic. We have a lot of experience with that. Like it or hate it? Is it does I it fit it. in a high performance car? I love it. It would make me uh, it would make me put my manual transmission to rest <laughs> if I had the option between the two. And pretty the much, traditional manual. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. If you drive the new Porsches with the dual clutch PDK, yeah, there's no. Absolutely no reason to have a traditional manual. That's They're a, faster. That's yeah. a rocket ride. They're yeah. faster. Mm-hmm. I mean, you cannot end the – and we were just doing uh, a road test on the uh, uh, several of the cars that have them, and we were looking at shifts of 50, 60, 70 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's unbelievably quick. You can feel it, too. You feel it through your spine. It's <laughs> – When it you're jams, in a performance yeah. car with a dual clutch. Some, yeah, some of the sequential manuals, you know – you know, a few years ago, BMW, uh, you know, M5 and M6, they they were kind of rough on the street, but the the new ones have gotten much better. They have their different modes for different applications, and you know, you can get a street mode, and it's just like driving an automatic. I think we're going to see a lot more dual clutch transmissions. Yeah. I know I that so. uh, I, I know that the domestic manufacturers are talking about them too, and so that'll put them in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, we'll see them in pony cars one day. Well, it would make sense. Think about something. Uh, think about the Camaro or the Mustang or the Challenger with one of those. It would be a lot probably knock a couple of tenths off the, the best acceleration times. Uh, okay. Basically, that brings us to a close of our Motor Week podcast, number 25. I want to thank everybody that's been joining me around the table here in Studio C, Brian Robinson, Shami Choksi, and Ben Davis. In the background, but making sure we get out to you loud and clear, is audio engineer Jim Bigwood, our podcast creator, Bob Mixter, and as always, our producer, Michelle Parker. Thanks very much for joining us, and stay tuned for more Motor Week. You have been listening to the podcast of Motor Week, television's original automotive magazine. 
Motor Week is made possible by Cars.com. For additional information on podcasts, videos, and showtimes, visit our website at MotorWeek.org. And watch Motor Week, television's longest-running automotive magazine series, each week on your local PBS station.